Welcome to the Heights of Humanity podcast. My name is Jason Bott. I'm a student at the University of Texas at Austin and an undergraduate researcher specializing in glacier dynamics and polar geophysics. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Douglas Hemingway, a planetary geophysicist and former robotics and systems engineer who's made a career out of making groundbreaking discoveries about our solar system and the planetary bodies within it. Dr. Hemingway primarily does this through modeling and hypothesis testing of geophysical and geological phenomena using various forms of data, collected by orbital satellites, planetary rovers, manned and unmanned spacecrafts, telescopes, and more. I hope you have as much fun listening to this episode as I did talking to Dr. Hemingway. Expect to hear about how planets and moons create magnetic fields, the challenges of planetary science, the driving forces of Earth's magnetic field and how they change with time, why the Moon and Mars do not have internally generated magnetic fields, possible ancient oceans on Mars, lunar swirls, and the origins of Enceladus and its iconic water-spewing ice canyons that can stretch up to 130 kilometers in length, which I will note is almost the distance from L.A. to Portland, Oregon. As always, thank you so, so much for tuning in. And now, without further ado, so, hello, Dr. Hemingway, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, no problem, you can yeah. call me Doug. Doug, uh, awesome. If that's comfortable for you. No, yeah, for sure. How are you doing today? Good, just ran over from a seminar, we had a visiting speaker yeah. over in the PMA building, so. Yeah, 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 are you running that that whole? No, I was just the host, I was the person who knew this person and reached out to him and invited him so i'm kind of looking after his schedule for the day and yeah. making sure he has lots of fun interesting people to talk to and take take him to lunch take him to dinner later stuff like that and if i'm remembering correctly you had a uh, proposal that you just submitted right yeah yeah how it did was, that go i think it went well it was due february 1st so that's done now and now i just have to wait maybe yeah three, four, six months to find out whether it gets funded. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that like a typical waiting time for? Yeah. 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 Man, and then, then be... we'll see. So, I mean, I'll work on other projects in the meantime. And yeah. if, uh, if that does come through, that funding does come through, uh, I mean, it's probably a project I'll want to do at some point anyway. But mm -hmm. um, if the funding does come through, then it sort of maybe influences the timing of when you do things. So if it doesn't come through, I might work on something else first and then come back to that later. So, to get started, I'd like to spotlight that from the outside looking in, your academic journey is really freaking cool. <laughs> like, so from my understanding, and feel free to correct me at any time if I'm wrong, because you're obviously the expert in Dr. Hemingway's life, um, but you started your academic journey with robotics and systems design engineering at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Right. There, you performed undergraduate research on autonomous drones, super cool, by the way, which led you to a master's program at the International Space University in Strasbourg, France. And then after that, you spent a year in Sagamihara, Japan. As a graduate intern, then came back to the States, got your PhD at Berkeley, went to Carnegie, and then worked in industry for a while at Maxar Technologies, and now you find yourself here 
at the University of Texas. Is that right. all accurate? That's, that's mostly right. But okay. I mean, that's very good because it's a very complicated journey. Yeah. So it's yeah. okay if it wasn't exactly right. So the thing that's missing is, so I did undergraduate degree in engineering and then I went straight to work in industry. I, originally, I had no interest in grad school. I oh, really? To go straight to work. Okay. And after undergrad, I went to work uh, for a space robotic company, like the big one in Canada, the one that made the Canada arm. And I worked there for basically eight years. So I had a whole like eight year career in space robotics. Uh, and it was only towards that, you know, eight years into that when I started thinking, maybe I could learn about some other things and kind of expand my horizons. And that's when I went to International Space University. And uh, my internship at uh, the Japanese Space Agency was sort of part of that. So I was only there for three months in Japan, but, um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, it's a complicated and unusual journey for sure. So, yeah, I was amazed by how many places you went and how many places you spent time in. And is it safe to say that planetary geophysics was not on your radar when you were going into undergrad? Yeah, that's very safe to say. I don't know if I had ever heard of those two words together before. Um, I guess I, like a lot of people, I was probably interested in you know, space exploration and, you know, space science, but I didn't know too much about it, but I kind of gravitated towards engineering. And then, so yeah, I was an engineer. And like I said, I, I wasn't even interested in grad school at all at the time. I was just, I thought I would just go right to work and start building stuff. And, and then my interest in robotics kind of led me into, thought it was a good way to combine a lot of different disciplines of engineering. So I, I did uh, robotics research in undergrad. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm still interested in space, so how can I do space and robotics? And there's this space robotics company. Um, have you heard of the Canadarm? On so the it's the big robotic arm station? on the space shuttle and yeah. then also on the space station. Yeah, so I went to work for that company. Uh, it was sort of the natural move for a Canadian uh, to go work, work there. Gotcha. I'm curious what kind of led you to such a change from – I mean, you're still doing – planetary space research, but you switched from robotics engineering to planetary geophysics, seemingly two completely different fields. Yeah, they're pretty different. Like I said, I guess I think robotics was appealing, but space is appealing on its own. And so after I'd worked at that company for a number of years, and there was also some other things happening, like there was a project I was working on, which was really cool, and then it got canceled. And so I kind of went back to my old job, which was still cool, but it was starting. I was starting to feel like I wasn't growing anymore. I didn't feel like that rapid growth phase of, of learning. Well, I, I felt like I was, I was sort of passing that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I thought uh, I should learn about some other things. And I was interested in maybe like space exploration missions where they're sending rovers to other planets. So that's what I did in Japan. I worked on rovers for planetary surface exploration. And um, at some point I thought, you know, it's really interesting from the point of view of an engineer, you just want to build stuff because it's cool to build stuff. That's mm -hmm. it, right? And I know that there's some sort of science questions that they're after, the scientists are after. I don't know what those science questions are. But I thought, if I learn a little bit more about the science questions, then that would make me a really valuable engineer. I'd be like, still be an engineer, but I could also understand enough about the science that I could work with the scientists and be like a really valuable person on these space exploration missions across the solar system. So that was my, when I kind of decided that when I was in Japan, I thought, that's what I should do. And um, I thought I'd maybe end up working at JPL as an engineer. But I thought I better learn about science. And I ended up doing, I realized there's no, you're not going to learn very much in like a one year, two year master's program. And so I thought, I guess I have to do a PhD in planetary science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thought I would start doing that and, and then eventually come back to engineering. But 
uh, once I started the planetary science, I just was hooked. I just found it. It was was very different mindsets. Like you said, the whole approach is different. The way you think about things is different. So it was a bit of an adjustment when I first got to grad school um, uh, at Santa Cruz. But quickly, I I really got into it. And I I decided that that's actually the more the thing I want to do is more the science. And so now it's the other way around. I'm the scientist who also understands enough about the engineering that I could maybe have conversations with the engineer. Gotcha. Yeah, that I, I can kind of connect that to an idea that I talked to with a guest on podcast. His name was uh, Shabam Pandi. He's a data engineer and mm-hmm. um, back-end developer. And he, like, he was talking about advice for students in computer science and things like that. Um, and he said to try to understand what's under the hood, mm-hmm. and that'll make you a lot more valuable. Right. And um, that just kind of flipped in my mind when you were talking about how you um, wanted to be more valuable as an engineer. So you took the time and effort to really learn about the problem that you were trying to address right. with the engineering. But yeah, it's it's yeah. funny and that you got so hooked on it and just kept with it. I'm curious how much friction you had um, going into a new field like that, especially when you're well-established in another field already mm-hmm. and you correct me if I'm wrong, kind of have to start from ground zero. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was friction for sure in a couple of ways. Like one was like, I didn't know what I was talking about. I had no background in geosciences or anything like that. I'd never even taken a course in courses that I ended up later teaching. <laughs> I never even taken those courses. So um, yeah, I was kind of coming out of nowhere. And so as a, as a student, like applying to grad school, I think you know, someone had to sort of take a chance on me. I'm kind of coming out of left field. And it happened that one of the places uh, I was interested in going was Santa Cruz, University of California at Santa Cruz. And there was a professor there at the time who was super interested in missions. And so from his point of view, I was like this perfect person who also understands the engineering side. And so that was like a really good fit. And then, yeah, so he invited me to come there and and, and that, that worked out well. Um, I don't think he would have even wanted a student who was not interested in missions at all. And so that ended up being an asset. But yeah, I think a lot of people might have thought like, who is this guy? What is he, (laughs) where is he coming from? And then I wouldn't call it friction exactly, but yeah, I had a lot of stuff to learn when I first got there. So I was sort of taking some classes along with the undergraduates just to kind of catch up in certain areas that I, you know, didn't have background in and um, just basic earth science courses. Mm -hmm. And also there was a mind shift, a mind mindset shift that had to happen because as an engineer, especially working in like human spaceflight, it was, uh, international Space Station. I guess I didn't explain that, but that was my job was in space robotics was helping to build the International Space Station. That was a big part of it. And so when human spaceflight, in human spaceflight, you have to be very, very careful because like, something goes wrong, people die. And so there's like so much red tape. Everything had to be super double checked and there was lots of factors of safety margin and all this sort of stuff. And then I get to planetary science research and people are like pretty happy if they're within an order of magnitude of an answer. And I, it was very hard for me to accept that. I was like, what do you mean? Like, th- this is meaningless. We need to get down to the bottom of this. And they're like, no, 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 that's pretty good. <laughs> so it was like, I was a little bit frustrated with that at the beginning, but then I, I came to see it as kind of liberating. You just, we're just trying to get the shape of an answer to start with. And, uh, and, and that's kind of empowering. Like you don't have to stop just because, you know, you don't have every single piece of data in hand yet. You can start somewhere and then figure it out as you go, what, you know, further measurements you want, you want to make and so on. I had that same exact thought process yeah. when I went into that, um, especially like taking classes through high school and 
learning that science should be so on the dot and so accurate and and kind of building up this idea of what science is in my head. Mm -hmm. And then um, I'll never forget, I, I like gave, so Don Blankenship is uh, a coworker of yours and my supervisor, um, just for the listeners for some context. Uh, so Don told me, or I gave Don an answer on some like temperature model that I made or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, like, I, but I really need to hammer down the uncertainties, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't know, it's good for government work. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, <laughs> Uh, it's a funny saying of his, but it, it really does relate to the idea of like, if you're within an order of magnitude of the answer on these huge systems, yeah. you can like, even though the, the, you're an order of magnitude of, you have an order of magnitude of uncertainty on yeah. your answer. The system is so huge yeah. that it's, it's precise enough. And it's a lot better than nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and it's a starting point. And like, you do get better over time. Like things that you had an order of magnitude guess at, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, maybe we have much better numbers now, but it's only because you were okay with starting with that poor, that coarse answer. And then that helped you guide your thinking in terms of, okay, how can we do this better? It doesn't have to be like all done perfectly the first time. Yeah. yeah. That's a good probably thing in general <laughs> to think about in life. Like if you, if you're stuck waiting for everything to be perfect, you're never going to do anything. Yeah. That's a fantastic idea. I fully subscribe to that. Um, just there's so many directions man it was go. on the tip of, yeah 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 <laughs> here we go so the I'm, I'm curious about how sparse the data is in your field mm -hmm. when you have to send out this satellite to Enceladus or Saturn or Jupiter or Europa or whatever and it's taking you know 10 years to plan the whole project and then another 10 years for it mm -hmm. to get there and then you know, years to process everything and get it all back. So I can't imagine that there's a surplus of data in planetary geophysics. And um, I'm kind of curious how you guys work around that. Yeah, that's a great question. And there, it kind of depends on what kind of measurement you're talking about and where. So there are places like in the outer solar system, like you say, the missions are very infrequent. Um, you, it takes like seven or eight years to get out there, like to the Saturn system, say. And so you're not going to send a mission very often. And then um, there's a lot of waiting around when you do send a mission. And then, again, it depends a little bit on the type of data. So one of the types of data that I work with is gravitational fields. And the gravitational field, um, you know, when you're looking at a body like the Earth or the moon, you could put an orbiter in, you can get very high resolution gravitational field data. But in the outer solar system, we're not going into orbiter on these little moons of Saturn. Instead, we're just doing a flyby once in a while. And all you do is track the trajectory of the spacecraft during that flyby, and it's somewhat influenced by the by the gravitational field of that moon, but only in the sort of plus or minus 60 seconds around closest approach. So it's a very brief window, and so you're not going to get a beautiful 3D model of the gravitational field. All you, all you get is like very low order, very coarse, um, like a, it's a handful of numbers. It's like summarized as like two or three or maybe five numbers, and that's the, all the information you get. So for example, for Enceladus, we have the gravitational field, the quadrupole gravitational field, and then one component of the uh, octopole field. It doesn't matter what this means. The point is that in the quadrupole field, only two of the numbers are not zero. So there's only three numbers, a number called J2, a number called C22, and another one called J3. Again, it doesn't matter what those mean, but those are the three numbers we have, and that's all we're going to get until we go back to Enceladus, which is going to be, what, 30 years? Mm -hmm. So yeah, sometimes there's very little data to work with. But on the other hand, you know, on a body like the moon, you have 
pretty rich data sets sometimes. So we had the GRAIL spacecraft, which was a pair of spacecraft that were laser tracking to each other to measure how the gravitational field of the moon influenced the movement of the spacecraft. And they used that to figure out what the gravitational field of the moon is. And they've got very high resolution, uh, something like uh, degree 2000, which doesn't matter what that means. It's just like, there's it's a huge, huge, huge number of numbers. <laughs> And you can't possibly, you know, understand them all. You have to make all kinds of models, and uh, it's very rich. And people are still figuring that out. There's still data even from Apollo. So Apollo, you collected samples on the moon, and you there were some measurements from orbiting spacecraft, and that is still being processed, you know, 50 years later. So yeah, it really depends on the kind of measurements. Sometimes there's a wealth of data that la and Cassini, like Cassini, orbited Saturn for 13 years and collected a lot of information. And so that's still being processed in some ways. So sometimes there's a lot, and then sometimes there's not very much, but it really depends on what kind of measurement and and where you're looking. Do you have to fill in a lot of the gaps with computer modeling and things like that? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think about it in terms of filling in the gaps. I mean, certainly there's some literal like gap filling, like interpolation between course measurements, but the type of measurement that I was describing, it's not so much that there's something in between, it's just that there's higher resolution information that you're never going to know. Yeah, maybe meta, I, I meant more metaphor. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to think of your question in all the different ways that what you could mean. But um, definitely, yeah. So what I do is, yeah, a lot of what I do involves computer modeling. That, and this, it's part of what I do. So some, some of what I do involves taking some of the data, like, say, magnetic field data for the, for the moon and, and, you know, doing some processing with that or optical data from, you know, optical images of the surface of the moon, and there's some processing steps involved there. And there's other kinds of data where I'm not really processing any data. I'm just like, how can I explain the data? And then for me, explaining the data mostly means making some kind of model of the physical processes that are happening, uh, and then predicting what the measurements would be, and then eliminating the models that predict the wrong measurements. And so sometimes, even if there's only two or three numbers, that you, you, know, you work with what you have. And so then sometimes there's you're left with a lot of uh, sort of uh, um, degeneracy in the models. A lot of um, possible different models will all produce the same kind of observations or up to the point of the observations that we have. So that's something that you have to deal with sometimes. But you try to get your hands on as many different kinds of constraints as possible. Mm -hmm. And often the way the, um, they intersect across the parameter space, like if I make this measurement, it means that I, I'm not over here. It means I'm not over there. And if I make a different kind of measurement, it means, well, I'm not up there and I'm not down there. And so the intersection between those constraints allows me to get a pretty good constraint, even though each of the measurements separately is not all that tight. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you explained that really beautifully because I've done the same thing with polar geophysics where you try to intersect the uh, uncertainty that you have for, um, let's say, accumulation rate over time. So how much snow is falling on the top versus the surface temperature over time. So you have this window and that window. And yeah. exactly like you said, like yeah. you find the intersection between the two and then you try to get the the uh, string through the, the needle head. Right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, can you give me a brief explanation as to why planetary bodies generate magnetic fields? Yeah. Um, so basically, if you have an electrically conductive material, uh, whatever that is, um, if it conducts electricity and it's in motion, then you get this inter interesting interaction where the, any, the presence of any magnetic field, if you move 
uh, an electrical conductor in a presence of a magnetic field that generates currents of a conductor, right? And then when you're generating, when you have currents flowing through a conductor, that also generates a magnetic field around the, the current. And so you have this complex, if you have complex motion in the interior of a planet, like let's say the liquid metallic core of a rocky planet, and you have say convection and you have rotation, you have this very complicated motion. So there are magnetic fields induce currents, and then those currents in, induce more magnetic fields, and then they, but they, it has to be a 3D geometry. Things have to be changing in three dimensions, and then that introduces more magnetic field, and it eventually amplifies up to the scale of a magnetic, or of a, like a global scale field for a body like the Earth. Mm -hmm. um, it's always de decaying away as well, so it has to be an ongoing regenerated uh, process. So if those currents ever stopped, or if the convection slowed down, or whatever, then it would eventually decay away in a relatively short period of time, like tens of thousands of years, I think. Um, so not all bodies have uh, magnetic fields, but um, a bunch of them do. So I kind of described it in terms of rocky planets. For giant planets, it's pretty different. So like um, it's even in the case of Jupiter and Saturn, whether there's a rocky or metallic core is sort of unclear. Some th something probably higher density down there, but it's probably not as simple as just like a rocky interior. And in any case, it seems like the magnetic field is being generated elsewhere, like higher up in the hydrogen envelope. So at those pressures and temperatures, hydrogen is electrically conductive. And so it's in complex motion, it's electrically conductive. It's not what we normally think of as a metal, but it's basically metallic hydrogen in that state. And that allows it to conduct electricity and then you can generate magnetic fields higher out. Uh, in the case of Jupiter and Saturn, there's still like pretty well-organized magnetic fields like on a global scale that look dipolar, kind of like, like a bar magnet um, magnetic field for the whole planet, like Earth. But for bodies like Uranus and Neptune, it seems like the magnetic fields are much more complicated than that. So probably because they're not generated right in the center, they're probably generated further out and in some asymmetric ways. So you get these very complicated magnetic fields in those bodies. So that's not all that well understood yet, but that's just kind of, there's a range of different ways you can do it. Yeah. Um, Krista does a lot of research. Krista Soderlund is an yeah. expert on that. Yeah, yeah. So to better understand induction that's so if i have like a bar magnet and i have a copper wire and i rub that copper wire on that bar magnet i'm going to generate yeah they don't have to touch they just have to be a movement yeah in the present a changing yeah. magnetic field induces currents yeah yeah i think a great example is having like a loop of wire and then you run a bar magnet through yeah. like and you move it up and down yeah. and yeah. oscillate it that'll yeah. generate or vice versa have the magnet there and just move the wire around yep yeah. exactly mm -hmm. or then, just run current through the wire and that creates a magnetic so I want to go back to how ma a magnetic field is generated on Earth. So it's good to think about it as um, you have liquid uh, metallic elements like iron and nickel and things like that in the outer core. And the heat from the inner core is acting like the uh, stove stovetop. And it's heating up. So say you have a boiling pot of water. It's heating up that water. And then you have these three-dimensional currents over time, right? I think of it like, uh, yeah, yes, you end up with these these three-dimensional convection currents in the in the core, in the outer core. It doesn't have to be the outer core, by the way. Even if there was no inner core, this would still work. So what I think of the way the way I think of it is that you're pulling heat out because you're ultimately you're radiating heat out from the surface of the planet out to space, and so the surface of the planet ends up being quite cool. Um, close to zero from this point of view. 
and the middle of the planet is something like the temperature of the surface of the sun, and that's just because it got so hot when the planet accreted. And now it's all that takes time for that heat to get out. Accreted means like come together through gravity and right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, when you you form planets, generally you think about a bunch of stuff collecting together under self gravitation until it all smashes together. And as it smashes together, all that stuff that was far apart, uh, all that gravitational potential energy turns into kinetic energy. It all comes together and then heats everything up. And so you end up planets end up starting out pretty hot, uh, and they're just cooling. So the outside cools quickly, um, and then especially if they're hot enough that they're totally molten, then the metals will segregate out towards the middle, and then you end up with this rocky mantle surrounding the metallic core. Never mind inner core yet. You just have a solid or a liquid metallic interior, and then this rocky stuff is, is also liquid initially, but it's going to conduct very vigorously if it's liquid, and it's going to cool off very quickly and solidify. And then you have this big blanket sitting on top. So how much you're pulling heat out of the core is a function of the viscosity of the mantle, structure of the mantle, the thickness of the mantle, things like that. So coming back to your point, yes, it depends on how much heat you're pulling out of the core into the mantle. And if you're pulling the heat out faster than you can conduct it out, then the mat- then the core is forced to convect. That liquid metallic core is forced to convect. If you pull it out gradually enough, then it will just be able to conduct. Like the fluid can be kind of thermally, stably stratified so that the, so it's actually just conducting even though it's a fluid. Yeah. Just like, you know, I think your stove would be the same. If you go slowly enough, it won't, won't, it'll just heat through like as if it's a solid rather than, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Um, but yeah, so if you're pulling the heat out too fast though, then it, it will start to create density anomalies because you suck the, the heat out of the things and that changes the, like the thermal expansivity means that the, that stuff is going to shrink and it's going to be more dense and then it's going to sink. And so it's, it's almost the opposite of like heating something from the bottom, from the, from the stove. It's actually cooling it from the top. But it's the same idea. Yeah. So whether there's a, core, a solid inner core there or, or not is sort of independent of this question of thermal convection. But there is, and maybe this is what you're thinking of, is um, why it's thought to be important that there's a solid inner core. Is that what you're thinking about? Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is yeah. that um, there's another way of driving convection, which is that once you start to cool, if the, at some point the temperature of the core gets below the melting temperature, then it will start to crystallize. And in the case of the Earth, because of the high pressures, it ends up crystallizing from the center outward. And so when you're crystallizing from the center, now what happens is as you're crystallizing, there's a preference for, so this this fluid is, like you said, it's iron, but it's got some other lighter elements in it. Um, and there's a preference for the, when you're crystallizing for it, to crystallize pure iron and reject light elements. So light elements end up partitioning preferentially into the fluid. And so you end up with a solid inner core that's pretty close to pure iron, and then the liquid outer core is getting enriched in lighter elements. And so that enrichment is happening at the boundary between the inner core and the and the outer core, the inner core boundary. And so as you're crystallizing, you're rejecting light elements, you're basically creating fluid there that's lower density than the rest of the fluid. And so that buoyantly rises up and that drives convection from the bottom. Oh, wow. So that's kind of a long explanation, but there's sort of two ways of driving, two main ways of driving convection in the Earth's core. Thermal convection, if you're pulling heat out faster than you can conduct it out, you have to conduct thermally. And then compositional convection, if you're introducing light elements because you're crystallizing and you're preferentially rejecting light elements at that inner core boundary, then you introduce density anomalies that drive convection the other way. Is that crystallization process something that tapers off over time as you develop a more and more pure iron core and all of those lighter elements kind of make their way to the top and stay there? Yeah, that's a good question. So 
there's a few different opposing effects. So as your core is, as your solid inner core is growing, as the surface area gets bigger, there's more and more area to react. And so there's, it actually gets more and more vigorous at, uh, initially. So the compositional convection starts out being zero before the inner core nucleates. And then once you nucleate an inner core, you start introducing these density anomalies and it gets quickly gets stronger and stronger. But yes, it does slow down eventually. Uh, partly though, that's I think just because the as you're removing, you have to also keep removing heat energy to actually crystallize the core. And that gets harder and harder over time as the whole thing gets cooler and equilibrates uh, thermally. So that slows down for that reason. And then I think what you're getting at is another separate reason, which is that as you're enriching the outer core in light elements, you're also changing its chemistry. And so you're changing the melting temperature of the core. And so it is possible that that will, that will be an additional reason that it would slow down. So yeah, I think that does slow down over time. Uh, I mean, it gets bigger over time, but the, like the curve, the curve, you know, looks like this. Okay. I'm not left-handed, but looks like zero, and then inner core nucleates, and then it goes up. But so it tails up. Yeah, for for anyone that's not watching the video, oh, sorry. it looks <laughs> like um, one of those like Egyptian swords where it starts off flat and then kind of turns into a uh, logarithmic function that tapers off over time. Gotcha. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> it does, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Can we take a break for one yeah. second? I need a, so where were we? Oh, yeah. So if that density-driven uh, convection tapers off over time, and then I would imagine that that heat from accretion isn't um, infinite, right? You have a finite amount of heat. So as you lose it to space, um, and as you lose it to, I don't know, maybe some other processes that I'm una unaware of, um, how do you know when, like, like the cutoff point between I'm generating a magnetic field because I have vigorous enough convection and I'm not generating a magnetic yeah. field? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. So you're right. The thermal convection gets weaker over time. So that one looks the other way. Maybe I shouldn't draw because I mean, that's the right, wrong way to do it. But it's basically like a inverse, like a one over X kind of curve where it just like starts out high when you have a big temperature difference between the core and the mantle. Uh, and then that just diminishes over time. I mean, I'm speaking in general terms here. Obviously, there's like different ways of setting this up. But um, generally, things are cooling down over time. And the temperature difference between the core and the mantle is reducing over time, generally. And so the heat flow from the core to the mantle is reducing over time. So the thermal convection gets less and less vigorous. And then at some point, the heat flow is so slow across the core mantle boundary that it's possible for the, even though it's a liquid, for that liquid metal to just conduct the heat. And at that point, thermal conduction stops. So that it's basically, there's a simple equation for that to answer your question. Like, is this thing bigger than this number or that or not? And if, it, if it's below that number, then there's no thermal convection. The uh, crystallization thing is, again, like there, it's zero before the core the core starts to crystallize. Um, so before that, there's no compositional convection. And then once the core starts to crystallize, then then you can start to have it. But the shape of that curve uh, depends on some things. It's a bit complicated. And it's also, there's some weird kind of exotic, exotic possibilities. Like, well, I say exotic. Exotic from the point of view of Earth. Because we think about, we're used to the way Earth works just because that's where most of the research has been done. But when you start to look at smaller bodies, bodies like Mars or especially anything smaller than that, 
Um, the pressure at the center is not that high. And so the, although the temperature goes up as he goes towards the center, the, the melting temperature doesn't climb as much. Maybe I should explain that. So in the case of the earth, it might be weird to think about this. Like how is it that the core is, as you go down from the surface, you go down through the Rocky mantle and then you get to the core mantle boundary, then you encounter liquid iron and then you keep going down towards the center and then it gets solid, even though the temperature is going up. Well, like why would it be solid at a higher temperature? And it's because the pressure is so high that the melting temperature is going up even faster than the actual temperature. And so the, you know, these two curves are, are crossing in such a way that the solid ends up being at the center and then you have this liquid uh, iron envelope around that. But that's not the case for smaller bodies where the pressure is small enough that the, the melting temperature doesn't go up that steeply. And so you can actually have it the, cur the curves oriented the other way around so that the place where the two curves meet first is actually at the core mantle boundary, not at the center. What that, what that means is that you start crystallizing not from the center, but from the top of the core. Uh, and that's something they call iron snow. So you start crystallizing at the top, it's still the crystals are more dense than the rest of the fluid, so they sink, but then they could also remelt uh, when, as it gets warmer, as they go down, they can remelt and then they can, they can drive convection that way. So that's a whole different mechanism. This iron snow driven convection. I don't understand it very well. That's super cool. It's a yeah, neat I, idea I've though. Never yeah. heard of that, but yeah. 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 <laughs> iron snow. Yeah. It sounds cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, were you, did you have more to say? I'm sorry. I I'm not sure yeah. if I did though, because yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I can explain iron snow any better, any better than that. Um, uh, but the point is like, yeah, all these things can change over time as you're changing the temperatures of these, um, as, as the whole temperature, as the whole system's temperature is evolving yeah. and then the chemistry is changing maybe a little bit. So how, how the thing evolves can be complicated. Yeah. Okay. Coming back to your question was like, how do you know when there's convection or not? So thermal convection is more or less simple. Compositional convection is, depends if, it, if the temperature is cool enough to crystallize. So how do you know if this is happening in a planet? Well, um, okay. Okay, actually, now that, I, now that I think about it, there's a slightly more complicated answer to that, <laughs> which is that, okay, yes, it's just comparing these two numbers, but that assumes you know what the actual value is on either side of that equation, and you don't. So one of them, <laughs> one of the key terms in there is the thermal conductivity of iron. And the thermal conductivity at iron at the temperatures and pressures that are relevant for the Earth's core is very hard to measure. Like, how do you do that in the, in the lab? You know, you have like thousands of Kelvin um, and like hundreds of gigapascal. You can't do it, uh, not easily. And so we don't actually know that number. And it's uncertain by a factor of a few. So I think people used to think there was a certain number, like 40 or 50 milliwatts per, or, uh, uh, watts per meter per Kelvin. And then... Um, that's been revised lately. Like now people think it might be three times higher than that. If it is, then that means that the core should be not, the heat that's coming out of the core is not enough to drive thermal convection. And so the core may be thermally stratified. So, so what you're saying is that the ability of iron to conduct heat energy changes as a function of its temperature and pressure? Right. Okay. And what they found was that they, um, it was three times less conductive than they thought it was. 
uh, more conductive. More, more yeah. conductive. Okay. Yeah. Although it's still debated, I think, because yeah. it depends how you do the experiment and it depends on some other assumptions. It's not my expertise, but it seems like that's an ongoing, you know, area of research, and it matters a lot because it changes the number by a factor of three, like how much heat flow out of the core is compatible with convection or not. So that tells us um, how how hot and for how long that that conduction value tells you how hot and for how long does the core stay which then tells you is there enough heat coming from it to drive convection um hope i'm getting that right i mean uh, for in broadly speaking yeah but i think like in in detail it might i don't know how much detail you want to go into but um as much as you want yeah. <laughs> no it's just like how do I think about it? So the one number is coming down over time. That is a function of how much heat is coming out of the core. And I'm, I'm thinking of this from a modeler's perspective, but um, but that is something that declines over time generally. And then the number you're comparing that to has to do with how conductive that material is. And then that's just your, it's where those two curves cross. So in terms of the evolution point of view, like how much, how much time the thing spends in this mode of where this convection is happening. I don't. I don't know how directly translatable it is to time. I think you have to mm, basically okay. model it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to throw it in some kind of function that'll tell you. Yeah, you function know. is a yeah a very complicated function. Yeah. <laughs> some kind of thing that tracks the the thermal structure mm -hmm. and how that structure changes over time as heat is being transported through the system. So kind of it's a thermal evolution model. Gotcha. So. Circling back to my original question, um, so Mars does not have a magnetic field, or if it does, it's very faint right now. Yeah, and I think there's no magnetic no field. magnetic field yeah. at all, apart from in the crust. Okay, there's rocks that are magnetized on the surface, but you know mm -hmm. we can come back to that if you want. But oh yeah, that'd be a great. But thing there's to come no back internally to, yeah. generated global magnetic field like on yeah, Earth. Yeah, 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 right. So that is a consequence of Mars not being big enough, so you don't have enough pressure in the core to be able to drive convection um, the w in the way that we see it on Earth. Yeah, I don't know if it's because of pressure, but yeah, I think you're right that it's partly because it's smaller. So like to a first approximation, you could think about how quickly, like I said, planets start out hot and then they cool off. And how quickly they cool off is kind of a function of their surface area, but how much heat energy they have in them is more a function of their volume. So the volume goes with the cube of the radius and the surface area goes with the square. And so that means that smaller bodies cool off much more quickly and bigger bodies cool more slowly, very basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... So Earth's radius is something like twice the radius of Mars. It's not exactly that, but it's close mm -hmm. enough. So that means the surface area is like four times as much, but the volume is eight times as much. Yeah. So it's going to take that much longer for heat to get out. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah. Um, that's oversimplifying it, but you get the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Definitely like orders of magnitude yeah. longer. Um, is the the time at which we run out of energy to generate a magnetic field is billions of years from now, right? On Earth? Well, that's a good well, question. Depending on the, the conductivity, conductivity research and things like that, but our kind of general understanding right now. Well, actually, no, it, it, it depends on. So like I said, there's these two processes. There's one where you're Thermally convecting, which that is strong at early times and gets weaker over time. And then there's compositional convection, which is zero initially. And then it starts to go up as when you start crystallizing a, a core. Uh, so in the case of the Earth, we have a solid inner core. 
It's been crystallizing for some time. We don't know how long, but some models suggest it's something like the last 800 million years or maybe a billion years. And so that means that the magnetic field that existed on Earth, we know it existed on Earth all the way back to like 3.5 billion years ago or 3.8 billion years ago, something like that. Um, it must have been powered by thermal convection early. But right now, it could be just compositional convection that's keeping it alive. So it could be, oh, wow. it could be that thermal convection is no longer happening in the Earth's core, and the only thing keeping the Earth's core generating a magnetic field is that there's compositional convection. And so I don't, there's no guarantee that you know thermal convection could go on for billions of years, or that a planet like Earth would have a mag magnetic field all the way till today. Because look at Venus. Mm -hmm. So Venus is pretty similar in size to Earth, but it has no global magnetic field. So actually, that's the proposal that I just submitted recently is about this exact topic. It's like just basically understanding why does Earth have a strong magnetic field and Venus doesn't? They're so similar. You know, what accounts for the difference? Yeah. So it could be that Earth just dodged a bullet and, and could have had its magnetic field die. It could be that the thermal convection stopped and then before the inner core started to grow. And in that case, you would have no... So that could be the situation on, on Venus. It could be that Venus had a magnetic field until very recently, say a few hundred million years ago. Thermal convection just recently stopped. This is all hypothetical. Uh, but there's no inner core yet just because the core chemistry is such that the, we haven't reached the melting temperature yet. It hasn't cooled enough to start crystallizing. And it could start doing that, you know, tomorrow. Start crystallizing tomorrow and maybe, you know, a few hundred million years from now you have a magnetic field again on Venus. So it could be, so it's sort of this like kind of a cusp. I think of it as like magnetic field strong in the beginning, goes down, may go below the threshold where there's it's not possible to drive convection and then it could come back up in the future and so it could be that earth dodged a bullet and hit that cusp point before reaching the threshold so that it always had a magnetic field it might have gotten weak and then started you know start, started to uh, strengthen up again and it could also be the case for mars like we don't we don't know but mars probably had a magnetic field early in its history but probably only for the first 500 million years or so and then it shut off but it could turn back on in the future. Like if the core is cooling enough to start crystallizing, it's possible that it will start to generate a magnetic field again in the future. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, I, I never thought of it like that. And uh, I'm curious about, I mean, if Earth had a thermally driven magnetic field to start and then it tapered off over time, I'm wondering if you could find evidence of that in rocks yeah. on Earth that have recorded the magnetic field. Yep, that's a great question. So this is um, research by my my colleague Peter Driscoll. He exactly the same reasoning that you just articulated. He said, "Well, it must have had a point where it was at a minimum before the inner core started to nucleate. So there should be, in theory, in the paleomagnetic record, there should, should be some evidence of like a minimum. But the problem is the data are very scattered around that time, and so they they did a paper and." You know, there's a bunch of numbers and they're kind of all over the place. So it's not enough to be a real smoking gun of that. But, mm -hmm. you know, with maybe more more samples or I don't know, it's possible that 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 there'll be future work that that shows that. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine if it's in the time frame or like post Cambrian explosion, then no, it's probably before this, that. Probably before that. Yeah. Because I was about to say you would probably have a huge extinction event i can't imagine that would be a great day if your magnetic field oh, yeah. <laughs> went down by orders of magnitude yeah. or completely shut off um yeah bombarded by maybe yeah radiation and things right. like that but right yeah yeah gotcha gotcha um although the earth's magnetic field reverses every so often yeah yeah but we don't know what that looks like when it's doing that so and is that reversal 
thermally driven or compositionally driven or both? Maybe? Oh, no, it's, uh, it's sort of independent of this. It's more about the field structure. Um, so I said you have to have convection and some complicated fluid motion in the outer core uh, to support the magnetic field or in the core, let's say. Um, but that magnetic field may be very, very complex. And then maybe it gets organized in some, such a way that it looks like a, a dipole, looks like a bar magnet from the outside. But like deep inside, it's much more complicated and it's much more dynamic than that. And so, you know, it might look like it sort of looks like a bar magnet for a while this way, but that's just the like macro scale. And if it if things just shift over just a little bit the other way, it could it could flip so that the result is that it looks like the bar magnet goes the other way. Um, that's very complicated. What's going on down in the core? Is that? And it's all. This is sort of an independent question. Like this, it's all. All of this requires the whole thing to be you know having vigorous motion. Yeah. Um. So. I'm trying to think of like. The, the magnetic field reversal, um, is that driven by a change in the actual like, um, kinematic convection? So like I'm maybe I'm convecting in this direction to to my left, and then all of a sudden you start convecting to the right, and then that creates a cascade. Or is it the actual like field, like magnetic field, electric field that's being generated, is kind of morphing or maybe both yeah i mean i'm i definitely didn't explain this well and i don't think i will be able to explain it well but i think what i'm saying is it's i don't think it's something like that i don't think it's like a sudden change i think what it is is it's we're lucky it ever looks stable mm. it's like so chaotic that it's yeah. basically all over the place down there but there's some also i think there's some gary glassmeyer showed me this one time that there's some you magnetize, once you have a solid inner core, you kind of magnetize the solid inner core and that has a little bit more stability to it. So that sort of stabilizes things a little bit. Uh, and so that from the outside, it kind of looks quasi-stable, but it's just kind of barely hanging on. And then it it's, it's prefers to be roughly aligned with the spin axis, but I don't think it cares very much whether it's this way or that way. And so it's just sort of like barely one or the other, but once it's on one side, it kind of stays there for a while. Uh, this is a horrible explanation, but like <laughs> no, 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 I don't think it's, don't uh, think it's bad. Yeah. but yeah, it's it's helping me understand a lot. Um, and what about magnetic fields generated on the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn? Um, it's farther out in the kind of radius of the planet, right? But would the same kind of general rules apply, and would you get like similar? behavior of reversals and and maybe thermal at first and then compositional later uh i'm not sure about the thermal and compositional i have to think about that i think it's pretty different um some things are similar so in the case of jupiter and saturn the their global magnetic fields are pretty much aligned with their spin axis in the case of Jupiter, it's tilted about 10 degrees from the spin axis, which is about the same as on Earth. Yeah. But on Saturn, it's like almost perfectly aligned with the spin axis. So it's that like pencil within. that we put through the planet and then it spins around kind of. Yeah, yeah, spin axis. yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's lined up with that perfectly for, or as within measurement error for um, for Saturn. For Uranus and Neptune, first of all, we barely measured them because we just had one spacecraft fly by that went through those systems and... You know, so there's not that much to go on. There's some other kind of less direct uh, measurements, but uh, it seems to be much more complicated fields. And so 
I don't know if anyone really understands how. I mean, you should ask Krista. <laughs> she would know better than I do. But like, uh, I should get her on I the think show sometime. You should. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think she even would tell you that I don't think they're all, all that well understood yet. It's kind of one of the motivations for sending a mission to Uranus or to Neptune or both mm-hmm. because um, we ha- we have such a poor understanding of how those bodies generate magnetic fields, and those are just like one of the most common types of bodies in the solar system, like sort of ice giants or like super Earth kind of that sort of scale, you know, ten Earth masses. 15 earth masses uh, those are very common in the galaxy and and yet we're like so we know so little about them so yeah i don't think it's well known actually the answer to your question how how those what those magnetic field generating processes are like in those kinds of bodies that's going to be a really interesting development when we start to learn more about that like, yeah yeah that's that's, that's th- hopefully the next like it seems like that's the plan is the next big flagship mission to the outer solar system is a mission to the uranus system is, I'm curious if uh, you know if the Ryman Reason mission that's that's launching... Europa Clipper? Europa Clipper, there we go. Um, is that going to... Well, there's Europa Clipper and there's Gannet and there's um, uh, Juice, which is the European... Gotcha. Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, something like that. Are either of those missions going to collect any data on Jupiter or are they solely focused on those icy moons? I'm I'm not sure exactly what's okay. in their plan. I think they're mainly focused on the moons, but there will definitely be some incidental data collection in the around the giant planets. I'm sure, yeah. opportunistically, but I don't know how much of that's built into their plan. Yeah. That was just like a, a, a curiosity of mine that I that I had on the on the spot. Um, as far as generating mag- a magnetic field with non, I say non-metallic normally non-metallic yeah, elements. metallic hydrogen yeah metallic <laughs> hydrogen there you go uh-huh. are there other elements um that you like model or observe that that generate magnetic fields on the gas giants or theoretically could yeah again this is kind of way outside my expertise but okay. i think what i don't model anything like that but um i mean as long as it's electrically conductive then it's you know it could participate in the generation mm-hmm. of magnetic field Gotcha. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. In fact, in the ice giants, the ice giants, the Uranus and Neptune, it, you know, it may not be hydrogen at all. It may be like methane or something like that. And would you say that a magnetic field could turn back on again? Um, in the case of Venus, does that also apply to Mars? Could Mars' yeah. magnetic field theoretically start churning again? Yeah. And that's because of the crystallization process. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's not going to turn back on because of thermal convection. That's probably done forever. But um, but yeah, if the core starts crystallizing, or it's actually actually possible that the core has already started crystallizing, but it's just so small that it's not yet enough of an effect to generate a global field. Mm-hmm. But if it's crystallizing or if it starts crystallizing at some point, it will eventually, should eventually generate a magnetic field again. Yeah, but that would be in hundreds of thousands or millions of years? Uh, yeah. So I like to joke that my prediction from that, I wrote a paper on this, and the prediction was that the reason, one of the motivations for the paper was like we have reason, uh, reason, uh, Insight, which is a seismometer that's on Mars now. Mm-hmm. And we thought, we wrote, started writing this paper before the thing landed. And the idea was like, okay, well, if they detect the presence of a solid in their core, you know, that would be an interesting thing. Like, how could we square that with the absence of a magnetic field today? Because once there's an inner core, you're, you know, generating 
this composition convection shouldn't that drive a, a dynamo and um, one of the things that we discovered is that if there is a solid intercourse, it's possible that it's not enough to generate a magnetic field or like an observable magnetic field yet. But if you do see a solid intercore, then we predict that the magnetic field will turn back on for sure sometime within the next billion years. And that's a great prediction because like, you know, come back in a billion years and tell me if I was wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that's something you could do with a lot of planetary science yeah, problems. Yeah, it's yeah. true, it's true. It's I mean, obviously we try to do better than that. But, yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Uh, but occasionally there are you know, some predictions that'll take a while to falsify. <laughs> so there's, so that's there's, like that for everything. Gotcha. So there's no way that um, a magnetic field could be generated on some kind of human time scale to where, you know, habitation on Mars would be easier. Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, well, it's just that it changes. Things change so slowly. So if there's yeah. nothing there now, like. To a planetary scientist, a hundred million years is a short amount of time. But um, you know, if something ch changes, goes from zero to like a decent magnetic field in a hundred million years. That's not very helpful for planning for astronauts living there or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. We we're gonna have to not not bank on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we're gonna have to come up with other solutions. Yeah. So was the that seismometer that you mentioned was that a long wavelength seismometer that? Um, tried to get a picture of the like uh, chemical composition and kind of um, state of matter of the different uh, stratigraphy? The interior of Mars. Yeah, yeah. interior of Mars. There we yeah, go. so they're trying to understand the interior of Mars. Um, now, it's not like on Earth where you have like tons of earthquakes all the time and you have thousands of seismic stations all over. You can get a very detailed picture of all there's lots of sources of seismic energy and and lots of stations to measure it at so you can get a very good picture of the interior structure this is baby steps this is the first one it's just one single seismic station and no active sources so there's no like and it was basically had to just hope wait for mars quakes and unfortunately there weren't as many as they had hoped there would be there were still some uh, and they got a lot out of that mission so they did get a bunch of you know mars quakes that passed seismic energy through the interior of mars and was received at that station and so they were able to learn a bunch about the interior of mars but you know it's it's the beginning so it's not like enough to get a rich rich picture like we have of the interior of the earth gotcha so and also most of the and maybe this is getting to your question yeah, yeah most of the source was from not too far away from like uh i don't know how many degrees away from from the source but it wasn't from the opposite side of the planet there was very little from the opposite side of the planet or near opposite side of the planet so it was hard to get uh, seismic waves that went through the core. Mm. I think I'm not sure if they had any or like how many there were, but that that would have been the minority. I think. Is that a uh, something they want to mitigate if they are to do something like that again, where they would um, consider the fact that they didn't get a lot of seismic waves from the opposite side of the planet, so they would put their instrument in a different location on Mars and. Yeah, I think if you were going to go back, you probably would be in a different location for mm -hmm. a number of reasons. Yeah, but yeah, yeah the course. more you end up measuring from different places, the better. But also, you know, it's also a question of like the sources, and you sort of have to work with what you have uh, on Mars in terms of sources. So, but yeah, it's possible that like that one source that they found that was pretty this one region that was active and producing most of their um, signal, if you went 
farther away from that, then maybe some of that seismic waves from that source would pass through the core. Um, this is not my expertise. <laughs> I should be I should be noting, but uh, but yeah. So, um, are we able to conclude the state of matter of Mars's core? Or um, we know a few things about it. So we have some idea of the of the moment of inertia. So some idea of the radial density structure. We have some idea of the core is probably liquid metal, liquid iron, like on Earth, but probably with some probably more light elements like a sulfur and silicon, things like that. Um, there's a bunch of different arguments that I don't think I could reproduce here easily, but um, for why they think there's a lot of sulfur in the core of Mars, something to do with the density and also just the, the there are geochemical arguments for this. Um, but it's not super well determined, I don't think. Gotcha. And on the subject of Mars, um, I do know you, that you've done some research into Martian oceans and when, maybe not oceans themselves, but when there was slash could have been water on Mars and what evidence we have for that. Is, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, it's not really my research. A colleague of mine, I think you're thinking of this paper I wrote with, uh, well, it was Robert Citrin. He, he's the one who wrote the paper. Yeah, I think that's the one. And uh, yeah, so I helped out a little bit with that. But um, the, he... Yeah, so the, I can explain a little bit about, so if you look at the surface of Mars, the dominant thing that you notice is that there's the southern highlands, which are these very high standing rough topography. And then there's the northern lowlands, which is this very smooth, lower, topographically lower region. So that's, they call that the crustal dichotomy on Mars, like the biggest feature that needs to be explained on Mars. And so um, a common explanation is that that whole northern hemisphere was once an ocean. So that's like a seafloor. Um, and it's just got very different morphological characteristics. And then there's a few different kinds of evidence for this. But one of them has to do with shorelines. So there are things that look like paleo shorelines in a couple of different places. And it suggests that there were maybe there was an ocean, but uh, the, the size of the ocean changed over time. So there was at one time like a a, lar a large amount of water covering, say, almost the hemisphere. And then later, there's a shorelines that formed later that suggest that the ocean had later shrunk. And then now a new uh, shoreline far formed around this smaller ocean. Uh, that's a starting point. I don't know if, uh, where you want to go from there with this. <laughs> yeah, where, do, where does all that water go? Uh, I think that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it escapes. Like, I think it evaporates because your pressure is too low and you're or whatever your climate conditions are not right to support liquid water or yeah. enough liquid water on the surface and it evaporates and then it doesn't stay around because you have solar wind interacting with the this is not my expertise i should say as well but like um you don't have a magnetic field protecting mars from the solar wind and so you have solar wind interacting with the atmosphere and it's just easy for things like volatile things like water to go away gotcha. out into the solar system wow so just evaporated up and then blown away by by the leaf blower that is the sun <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah maybe but take that with a grain of salt because okay, okay, like okay. i said this is not my expertise so gotcha. uh, exactly what all the processes that are that are involved are, i'm not really sure yeah so a little more of your expertise is the tiger stripes on enceladus right 
Yeah, I mean, again, that was a little bit of a, I, I, I like to dabble in a few different areas. Uh-huh. Yes, but yes, I, I did write a paper on, on the Tiger Stripes of Insolvents, yeah. So could you give, for the audience, just a brief explanation of what these Tiger Stripes are and kind of how they're formed? Yeah, so first of all, Enceladus is a tiny moon of Saturn. It's about 500 kilometers across, um, but uh, I would say it's arguably one of the most interesting places in the solar system because it is, even though it's tiny, it's extremely geologically active, which is very surprising. So it's the brightest object in the solar system. Oh, wow. And um, we knew this from the Voyager flyby that it had a very young-looking surface. There's like very few craters. A lot of old moons sitting out there, just nothing but craters. That's all that happens to them is they get hit by stuff. But this thing has very young surface, vast regions of the surface where there's no craters and there's these tectonic features suggesting that there's been some kind of geologic activity, some modification of the surface. So if it's geologically young, what is going on? How is this tiny thing active? And um, and then when we got there with the Cassini mission, you could see, well, I think even with Voyager, you could see these tiger stripes. So this notably at the South Pole, there's this series of fractures Actually, I'm not sure if they saw them in Voyager or not, but uh, certainly with Cassini, we have like imagery of these, there's kind of fractures all over the place, but there's this very prominent set of four, or depending on how you count, maybe five fractures at the South Pole of Enceladus. And what's more is that with Cassini, you started seeing not only evidence of this thing being young, but actually being active right now. So there's water spraying out of these fractures right now like about 200 kilograms per second worth of water ice is coming out of these fractures. Sheesh. Yeah. And it just, you know, some of it goes into orbit around Saturn. A lot of it just ballistically falls back down onto the surface of Enceladus. And that's why it's so bright because it's essentially covered in its own fresh coating of snow. Gotcha. Yeah. And so with Cassini, we had uh, a bunch of different kinds of measurements of this. There were disturbances in the magnetic field. There was a few other different things, but you could actually see with imagery, once they had the flyby geometry, right, you could, image it so that the, they were backlit by the sun and you can actually just see these plumes of erupting material coming out. Nice. Yeah. And then later they organized some of the flybys so that the Cassini spacecraft actually flew through the plume of erupting material and sampled it with a couple of different instruments. They had a, a new ion and neutral mass spectrometer and they had another thing called the cos- cosmic dust an- analyzer and both those were able to take samples. And so we know a bit about both what those, those things are. Instruments that take a physical sample right. and then uh, through some fancy geochemical process or, or just like chemical process in a machine tell you the concentrations of different elements? Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, and uh, so they weren't designed for that. Like you weren't, they were designed to pick up stuff that's in the space environment, but they never expected that there was going to be this dent, high density Sp- like spray stuff spraying out of a moon uh, but they were okay well let's go see what it tastes like <laughs> and um, uh, anyway so we know that it's water ice we know that it's rich in all kinds of salts and we know there's organic molecules there uh, we know even like large complex organic molecules we just don't know what they are like because they get smashed up in the detector so you don't know what you know, basically you can count the mass and you can figure out that it was a large complex organic molecule, but you don't know if it was like alive or not. Mm. Um, so maybe with a future mission, you could go back with a different combination of instruments that are designed differently and actually figure out whether that material is biological or not. Right now, it's we know what it, it's interesting, but we don't know whether or not it's biological. So, so you know, like through that mass spectrometer, you know how much carbon, how much nitrogen, how much oxygen. So you can like guess which... Um, which compounds this could be, but you don't know the actual 
arrangement of yeah atoms, i think that's right yeah like that. okay. again that's not my expertise but i think that's right yeah okay gotcha yeah so from my understanding these tiger stripes are caused by oh yeah i didn't explain that yet oh I? yeah you're all you're all good um now's your chance okay shall so, i so the eccentric orbit of Enceladus, right yeah 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 well okay so First of all, we don't know how the tiger stripes are formed, but uh, I can tell you some uh, some theories, including so one, the one theory that I suggested. Yeah. 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 So uh, first of all, I should explain what you're talking about with the eccentric orbit. So how do you how do you put any energy inside this body in the first place? And the only way you can really do it is it's so small that you know there's no source of energy inside. Like there's not enough radioactive elements to keep it warm inside. So the only way that you're keeping it warm inside is through something called tidal heating. And that occurs because, like you said, the orbit is eccentric. So sometimes it's closer to Saturn, sometimes it's a little bit further away. I mean, it, there's a closest point in the orbit and the furthest point in the orbit. It's this elliptical orbit. And so that means that the tidal forces, which is the gradient and the gravitational force from Saturn, is stretching the body out, and then it's stretching and relaxing and stretching and relaxing. And so if you're stretching and relaxing something, like if you do that with metal, like it, it gets warm and soft, right? And so it's the same with ice. If you get the right sort of time scale and the right temperature, the ice behaves viscoelastically on that same time scale as the orbit. And so that means you are um, straining it. And so that is, there's some, some basically friction inside the system and that's heating it up. So viscoelastically kind of the same way an aluminum can would behave where you kind of bend and, uh, but it, but it's more almost like viscous, more like almost like a liquid, right? Yeah, it's somewhere yeah. in between. Like if it was purely liquid, it wouldn't do this. And if it was purely elastic, where it like completely recovered all the energy, then it wouldn't do this. But if it's somewhere in between, then there will be strains that actually dissipate energy. Mm, okay. And so essentially what you're doing is transferring energy through the gravitational interaction between Saturn and the moon. This is true of all pairs of bodies in the solar system. You're transferring energy between them. Uh, and in general, like, it's energy that's coming out of the rotation of Saturn. It's basically taking some of its rotational energy, but don't worry, there's plenty, <laughs> uh, and depositing it inside the moons of Saturn, and they're dissipating energy and turning it into heat. Mm. And so that's keeping it warm inside. So rotational energy being the spin of Saturn? Or yeah, you're slowing down okay. the rotation rate of Saturn. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's I'm the same as the Earth and the moon interaction, right? Yeah. So the moon is getting further and further away from the Earth, and the Earth's rotation rate is slowing. That's what's happening. It's like you're taking rotational energy from the Earth and you're putting it into the orbit of the Moon. Actually, it's a slightly different thing, but it's mm -hmm. a, but they're sort of related. Or the and the, and then the Moon is putting energy into the Earth through stretching and straining in the Earth the same way, right? Uh, it's also doing that, um, but yeah, it's not in terms of the orbital evolution. Uh, what's happening is the angular momentum from the Earth is being transferred into the moon mm -hmm. and so but yeah you're right that there's also uh interactions that cause like for example the tides and then that gets dissipated the, the, the ocean tides because the the land and the and the water respond differently you end up with all this friction wave smashing into things and so there's a bunch of energy dissipated that way on the earth yeah. okay yeah, yeah yeah okay so back sorry sorry yeah yeah i know this is gonna happen all the time back so, to yeah. enceladus yeah so, okay, so I still didn't explain the tiger stripes at all. So, we, again, we don't know how they form, but one idea that a colleague of mine had a number of years ago was that if there's some period in the history of Enceladus where it's freezing, like there's net freezing of the ocean, what happens is as you're freezing, the water, ice takes up more space than water. 
So basically there's a volume change there. And so now you're squeezing the ocean and you're putting the overlying ice shell into tension. And so as you gradually thicken the ice shell and freeze the ocean, you basically build up stresses in the ice shell. And at some point you will reach the failure threshold where the ice shell will crack. Now that's, that gives you one fracture, but that doesn't give you, doesn't it, an ex, and also why it should be at the South Pole or why it should be at one of the poles. That's another question I was gonna right. ask you. Um, yeah, this paper tries to answer all these questions at, <laughs> at once. But one, one idea is that because of this tidal heating, I didn't explain this, but the tidal heating that where the friction is happening in, at the bottom of the ice shell, um, that is maximum at the poles. And it's not obvious why, but it's just like a geometric effect that that's where the, the maximum strains occur. And so that means that the place where the tidal heating is maximum is at the poles and it's minimum at the equator. And so that means that the ice shell is going to be thinner at the poles and thicker at the equator. So if you're building up stresses through this freezing, then at some point it's going to fail. And where is it going to fail? It's going to fail where the ice shell is thinnest because that's where the stresses are going to concentrate. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to fail at one of the poles. Yeah. And I think it's a 50-50 chance whether it's the North Pole or the South Pole. But once it happens, then that overpressure on the ocean is relieved. And so that mechanism is done. That no longer available. You just made a fracture at one of the poles. Mm -hmm. In this case, it turns out to be the South Pole. That still doesn't explain why you get the, most, the rest of the fractures. So then... The additional idea with that paper was that um, once you're erupting, once you make it that fracture, now what happens is water fills up that crack to the level of neutral buoyancy. And at the top of it, it's exposed to the vacuum of space. So now that water is just boiling off. And there's people who have done research on that. Like how do you keep it in a controlled state so that it's, you know, there's some enough back pressure to, to kind of stabilize the system so it doesn't just like freeze over. But you can have a steady uh, ongoing eruptions for a long period of time. Uh, but all that stuff, some of it goes into orbit around Saturn, but most of it, like I said, ballistically just comes back down onto the surface. It snows back down onto the surface. And preferentially, that erupting material piles up on the flanks of that newly opened fissure. So if you can imagine you have this pl elastic plate, now it's broken, and now you're piling stuff up on the edge of this elastic plate, and so that's causing bending. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is the idea of that paper, was that this is going to create bending stresses in that elastic crust that ice, ice shell and at some point and it turns out for very reasonable assumptions about the elastic properties of the ice shell the maximum bending stresses occur 35 kilometers away which is the spacing between the tiger stripes so this is a way of explaining why are the okay so the questions we to come back to summarize them like how do the tiger stripes form why are they only at one pole um, why are they 35 kilometers apart why are they in parallel sets and why don't you see them anywhere else in the solar system so I've explained some of those things now. So the first one, you know, you get from this ocean overpressure maybe. But once you do that, now you start creating bending stresses, and that's why you get one one fracture right through the South Pole, that's Baghdad, and then you get a symmetric pair, 35 kilometers out on either side of that, um, are Damascus and uh, Cairo, the names of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once they erupt, or once they open up, then stuff starts erupting out of them, and then the same thing happens. Now they build up... Uh, uh, a load on the end of that now broken plate, and then they create another set of fractures and so on. So you get this kind of cascading series of fractures away from the, the pole. Do the fractures decrease in size as you move outward from your progenitor? Uh, a little bit, um, but another question is, they also stop at some point. So why do they stop? So you know, it could be that at some point you get far enough away from the pole that the background ice shell thickness is too big for the fractures to get all the way through. 
uh, maybe as the erupting material gets spread out over more and more open fractures, um, it's just not building up fast enough for it to kind of build up those loads before it can just relax away. So I, I don't know exactly why or how it stops, but uh, those are a couple of ideas. But I didn't explain why it's only Enceladus, and that's actually the most interesting part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is it not Europa or other icy moons? Yeah. So what I've told you is that I'm creating bending stresses, but what happens is when the fracture starts is now the bending stresses have to concentrate in the remaining unbroken part of the ice shell. And so as the crack propagates, the, the bending stresses at the crack tip increase as you go. But at the same time, you have overburden pressure. As you go deeper and deeper you know, into the Earth or into any planet, there's more and more pressure or the weight of all the rock or ice is squeezing you more and more. And so those two things are working against each other. But on Enceladus, the gravity is so small that that, that overburden pressure is essentially irrelevant. So the crack tip stress just rapidly increases. So the crack just rockets all the way through the ice shell. Whereas if you go to like Ganymede or Titan or Callisto, one of those bigger ones, um, you, get, you could in theory have the same kind of mechanism where the bending stress starts a crack, but as soon as the crack propagates a little ways down, the overburden pressure stops it. So it just stops and it never gets going. And even if you could eventually keep building up the loads and propagate it little by little, eventually you get to the ductile part of the ice where the ice is warm and soft and you're, this is not gonna work anymore. So you have to do it quickly on the time scale when the ice shell is behaving elastically. Mm -hmm. And that only works on small bodies like Enceladus. Wow. So, so the, that ice, that icy crust is thin enough to where you can have that brittle kind of like cracking open. Whereas, right. um, because your pressure conditions are such, um, because it's smaller than these larger icy moons that have that kind of brittle ductile transition. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly just because the gravity is bigger on. So it's kind of a function of the, the shell thickness and then the gravity. So gravity is so big on those bodies that the, the overburden, the pressure increases so quickly that it's going to stop the crack from propagating. Yeah. Whereas on the cell, this it doesn't. So why is there so much pressure to where the water on Enceladus like bursts and spews out of these tiger stripes? Yeah, so I don't think you need pressure to do that. It could be that it's just like I was saying, once you open the fracture and you're exposing the water to the vacuum, it's going to boil off just um, oh, into the vacuum. Mm -hmm. So it's this concept of a controlled boiling that's sustaining these eruptions. It's not that there's there's pressure squeezing mm -hmm. the ocean anymore. That's the idea for the first fracture, like how you make the first fracture. But once you do that, that overpressure is gone. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need over overpressure anymore to keep those eruptions going. And boiling, so is it hot at the surface or is there? No, boiling just because the there's, there's no uh, atmosphere. So the pressure is so like if you there's no, like, uh, like, like in a it, container, there's gas on top of that water in that container so the so that those liquid molecules don't evaporate off. Is yeah, like if I have a cup of water here, even if I don't change the temperature, if I lower the pressure enough, it will boil. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. So I, the water boils at, you know, lower temperature in the mountains. Mm -hmm. It's lower pressure. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. The phase diagram for water is kind of complicated, but, like, yeah, pressure is important. Mm -hmm. so if you lower the pressure enough. Yeah. Gotcha. And and um, so does because I I remember reading somewhere that Europa has kind of geyser spewing out, but I, I can't imagine to the scale of 
with the tiger stripe. Is it the same mechanisms going on there, just the smaller I mean, scale? The observations are pretty limited. They're from, I think, the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. So it's not from close-up observations, but there's a couple of detections of what looks like eruptions of some kind of water from Europa. Mm -hmm. um, when we go back there with Europa, Europa Clipper, hopefully we'll see some of that yeah. evidence. It doesn't seem to be anything like as intense as Enceladus. It's not like Enceladus is continuously erupting. There's some modulation in it, but it's basically continuously erupting for the whole you know, ever since we started watching it in like 2005. So um, Europa seems to be maybe less active, but it, it might be somewhat active. Maybe it's enough that we'll, once we're there watching it for a while, we'll see something. But mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So whether it's the same mechanism or not, you know, that's it's hard to say. So in these icy moons... Um, we don't even know what the mechanism is on Enceladus, really. I, mean, yeah, I told yeah, you yeah. some ideas, but Hypothesis we don't really, really know. Yeah, yeah. So on these icy moons... Are we, uh, how much knowledge do we have of the internal structure as far as like, um, is there some kind of like, so you have that icy crust and then you have this layer of ocean and then under that layer of ocean, is there like a, another kind of more solid rocky crust or does it kind of, um, is there more of like a direct like mantle or core interface between that ocean? Yeah, so first of all, I guess I should say, how do we know anything about the interior structure anyway? So we know something about the shape, and we know that the and we know what the gravitational field looks like, and we know how those things uh, are related to the rotation and the radial density structure. And so you can rule out certain radial density structures. You get some some idea of how much there's rock and and how much there's like water, whether it's frozen or liquid. It's hard to tell how much of it's frozen, how much of it's liquid just from the density structure because the difference between the density of ice and water is pretty small. Um, but yeah, we, we know that it's Enceladus, something like 60 kilometer ice and water hydrosphere, let's say. And then underneath that is a rocky core. So the radius of that's maybe 195 kilometers, you know, plus or minus a few kilometers. Um, that's, so that's, some, that's from the shape and the gravitational field. We can figure that out. But... Um, yeah, we use other things like things like the libration amplitude, which is something, I mean, that's a weird word, <laughs> but it's like, uh, it's basically how much it wobbles. So uh, the way the surface, the ice shell wobbles, tells you that it's decoupled from the rocky interior. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be able to wobble that much. It would be more limited. Oh, wow, but so it wobbles like, around, yeah. and it wobbles so much that we think it's decoupled, meaning that there's a global liquid water ocean there. And then also the magnitude of the wobbling tells you how thick the ice shell is. So the combination of all those measurements gives us a picture of the internal structure. But as to what the seafloor looks like is, I don't think we have a good way of constraining that at this point. Like when you, and it also depends what you mean by like a, by crust. Yeah, we basically assume there's some kind of rocky core. We don't distinguish between like whether there's a chemically distinct layer uh, where there's like rock of a certain type and then it changes to a different type. We don't really have the kind of resolution to be able to make those kinds of inferences at this point. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering how you would even make an inference like that because you use, I mean, I guess seismics. Maybe seismically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause, Cause radar would go through the ice, but then as soon as you hit the water, it would all reflect or almost all of it would reflect back up. And um, even seismic, like I'd imagine through an ocean as deep as that, it's gonna be hard to carry a wave yeah. all the way through and then interpret that um, or interpret what it traveled through before it went through that ocean. Yeah, I don't know how far they've gotten, but there's certainly people thinking about that, like 
what we could do with seismometers on these kinds of bodies. But yeah, mm -hmm. if you have an ice shell decoupled from the deeper interior, what what your seismic imaging looks like, I'm sure they can do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, but yeah, right now we don't know. Yeah, and is Enceladus through the kind of eruption in those tiger stripes is it losing a any significant amount of mass yeah you can do the math it's like 200 kilograms per second yep. is erupting and then like 10 percent of that escapes into orbit around saturn that's what the e-ring is if you ever look at the rings of saturn mm -hmm. there's these like pretty solid looking rings they're all just like balls of ice but mm -hmm. then the then there's this diffuse looking one that's called the e-ring that's where enceladus is and mm -hmm. so it's like it's actually the guts of Enceladus that are coming out and making the E-ring. Oh, so it's making like a smoke trail as it goes around. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of like permanently there. Oops, sorry. Kind of permanently there. And uh, I guess there's some diffusion of that out into you know wider space. So uh, I'm not sure how much mass loss there is from the system. But if you assume it's like the whole 20 kilograms per second that escapes Enceladus itself is all gone uh, and never comes back to Enceladus, then you can figure out how long it would take uh, to lose a significant fraction of its mass. Mass. I've I've done this before. It's like, it's not nothing, but it would like it might lose like one percent of its mass over the history of the solar system or something. Oh like that. wow. Okay. So it's nothing. Well, that's not. That's that's a lot. It's a lot. One percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, don't quote me on that. Like, I mean, we could do. You want to do the math right now? We could do it if you want. <laughs> sure. It's so like uh, twenty kilograms well, per second. Yeah. And, and so like in a, in a year, there's like. Pi times 10 to the 7 seconds. Yeah. Roughly. <laughs> seconds, so that times 20 kilograms yeah. in a year, and then how many years? So then just do a billion years, go like 10 to the 9 years or something. 10 to the 9 years? Yeah. So what is that? So that's... 10 to the you add the exponents, right? Yeah. So pi times 20 is around 60-ish. So you got 10 to the 17, so 10 to the 18... So something like 10 to the 18 kilograms in a billion years. Is that right? Is that what you got? Ten to Did the I do that wrong? Seven, eight. I think it would be 10 to the 60 times 10 to the 16th. Okay. Is it? Uh, Don't quote us on the math. Yeah, 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 I mean, okay. Well, we're getting hung up on that. But like, yeah. 10 to the 16, 10 to the 17, 10 to the... I, yeah, anyway, whatever, whatever. 10 to the 18. Okay. And then the mass of Enceladus is about 10 to the 20. So, yeah. It's like one times ten to the twenty, so it's about one percent of the mass in a mm -hmm. billion years. And um, even so, that's a lot. Yeah, even but it might not have been that. doing that the whole time. Uh -huh. Like maybe the, right now there's more erupting than usual, or I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, and even a one percent change could influence the way it orbits around Saturn and things like that, right? Um, I think what matters is more the Saturn, the mass of Saturn, less the mass of the oh, thing that's orbiting okay. it, yeah. but. My first thought is like, it would. I don't know what what it would happen if you reduce the mass by one percent. How much contraction there would be, and what that would do to the ice shell. Oh yeah, um, there should be. But I mean, it is an active ice shell, so it could have been resurfaced in the last you know hundred million years anyway. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe we did that wrong, but <laughs> I think I've done that calculation before, and it's something like that. So, it's not nothing, but it's. Yeah, I don't know. It's worth thinking more about. Gotcha. And and what was intriguing to me, and I, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, is that there's a I'm I'm thinking of it like a Enceladus or Europa, these these plant these moons with these icy icy shells around an ocean. Um, 
I'm thinking about them as like an egg and the actual egg shell is kind of wobbling while the inside part of the egg is moving at its own independent mm-hmm. independent uh, direction and, mm-hmm. and speed and whatnot. Yeah. Is that an accurate way to think about it? I think that's somewhat true, yeah. yeah. I think that the spin state of the liquid part of the core um, could be distinct from the, the rotation state of the of the rocky mantle that's surrounding it, yeah. Yeah. And is is it does that also happen on Earth? Like the yeah the speed at which the outer core and uh, at the outer core spins is different from. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't know the numbers or anything like yeah, that, yeah. but I think that's right. Gotcha. I think it's not just that they spin at different. Ra- they might spin at different rates, but they also might spin about a different axis mm-hmm. slightly. But yeah, I'm not an expert on that, but I think that's right. Yeah. Gotcha. And why does um, Enceladus's water ice that's erupted out and that does escape into space and uh, even the even the water ice that doesn't um there's no magnetic field i mean there's the magnetic field from saturn which may be your answer to this question but um there's no magnetic field generated on enceladus right so the water that you're spewing out um has no at least from enceladus has no uh, defense against solar radiation and things like that and it seems like that happened on mars where there was no magnetic field so when you evaporate this water into the atmosphere it kind of gets blown away why is the the water being erupted out of enceladus not blown away yeah maybe it is yeah maybe it is okay so has anyone looked into like how much mass that's escaping enceladus is actually working its way into that e-ring Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people have modeled that. Yeah. I'm not yeah. intimately familiar with the details, but people have modeled it in, in like pretty compelling ways. They show that the geometry looks right. Like uh, close up images of Enceladus embedded in the E-ring creates these interesting kind of streaming features mm-hmm. of the stuff coming out and then ending up in, in the E-ring and it matches models. So that means that to me indicates that people have a somewhat good handle on that problem. But in terms of like, what they're assuming in terms of how much of the mass is retained in the E-ring, I don't know. Gotcha. And then um, lunar swirls. Okay, big jump. Here we go. Big <laughs> jump. Uh-huh. But I want to I wanna talk to you about them before we head out of here. Sure. Um, again, like the tiger stripes and like magnetic fields and things like that, could you give a brief description of lunar swirls and how they form and things like that? Yeah. So lunar swirls are these very strange-looking optical markings on the surface of the moon. Um, you should Google them to look at them. They're pretty. <laughs> but they're very strange-looking. They're like these alternating series of bright and dark markings, these kind of blotchy patches of white stuff on an otherwise dark background is what they tend to look like. And they're you're, they're unique. You don't see anything like them anywhere else in the solar system. And they they were known. You can see them with telescopes from the Earth. and um, But... After Apollo, Apollo 15 and 16 in particular, they left these sub-satellites in orbit after the astronauts returned to Earth. They left these little sub-satellites that orbited for a few months and collected, they had magnetometers and they collected data. And they found out that these things are co-located with crustal magnetic anomalies. So they're these weird looking optical features and they're all co-located with crustal magnetic anomalies. So what we think is happening is that these are places where the strong crustal magnetic anomaly is interfering with the way the solar wind plasma is accessing the surface. And so solar wind is a stream of charged particles coming from the sun. Mm -hmm. 
And when you move a charged particle in the presence of a magnetic field, the Lorentz force deflects those, uh, those electrons or those ions. And so normally the surface of the moon would just be seeing, so there's no atmosphere, so you get, uh, let's get into the concept of space weathering. So space weathering is what happens to airless bodies that are exposed to the space environment. So if you have an atmosphere like Earth, then all the stuff is, well, the solar wind is first of all organized by the, by the um, magnetosphere and funneled into the magnetic poles, and that's what gives you the aurora. Uh, but you also have micrometeoroids, so just small things that just hit the atmosphere and burn up and they give you a shooting star. But when you don't have an atmosphere and you don't have a magnetosphere, all that stuff just rains down on the surface. So an airless body like the moon just sees everything hitting the surface all the way down to the tiniest scale. So you have large impactors that make big craters, but you also have tiny, tiny impactors like even an individual proton mm -hmm. or something that small hits the surface and makes like uh, a crater on the tiny, tiny scales. <laughs> and that has the effect of altering the optical properties. Uh, we can get into that if you want how it does it. But what happens is if your solar wind, which is a component of this space weathering, is being magnetically deflected by the presence of a magnetic field, that means it's going to access the surface in a different way. And so whereas like a normally exposed surface would just kind of have this uniform exposure to solar wind, swirls are places where the solar wind access is all complicated and that, that's what we think is making those structures. Mm. So it's following... Like those those charged particles are following the field lines exactly that some kind of magnetic body yeah under the surface right gotcha and how big are these lunar swirls roughly so they're organized into they're just kind of in a few patchy places all over the moon um, uh, but some of them are complexes of hundreds of kilometers ar across but they're all consist of like small scale features like the scale the transition between the bright Part of the swirl and the dark part of the swirl is never more than a few kilometers so maybe five kilometers but they're also all the way down to like maybe less like hundreds of meters all the way up to maybe five kilometers mm -hmm. but even though there'll be clusters of them that are hundreds of kilometers across the there's always some like short length scales in those features gotcha and i'm i'm thinking about the origins of uh lunar swirls and why you have a magnetic body just yeah sitting under the surface yeah it's a great question. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking maybe some kind of impactor comes yeah. down and it's it's full of some kind of magnetized yeah. magnetized metal or element and then kind of gets buried over the surface, but its magnetic field is still present. Is that? Yeah, it could be that, or it doesn't even have to be magnetic. It could just be a metal-rich impactor and it like spills its guts on the moon and it's hot because it's just hit the you know all that kinetic energy has heated it up when it hit the moon, and so maybe it's just hot blobs of metal. Mm. not magnetized. But if you have a magnetic field, so the moon doesn't have a magnetic field today, but like Mars, it looks like there's evidence that there, it did have a magnetic field early in its history. So if you, this happens at a time when the magnetic field is present, then those things, like if you cool a rock down, especially if it's rich in certain kinds of uh, minerals, like metals and like magnetite and things like that, if you cool that down in the presence of a magnetic field, it records the ambient field. And so it becomes permanently magnetized. Any permanently magnetized rock that you find on the Earth is usually magnetized in that way. Mm -hmm. It's thermal remnant magnetism. Yeah, that's how they, um, I don't want to say proved, but that was a, a large piece of evidence for plate tectonics. Yeah, and, that's right. And it's what we were talking about earlier, where when you have that taper off from a thermally driven magnetic field to a compositionally, compositionally driven, you would see some kind of record of that exactly through the process that you're talking about. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
what does the overall shape of the lunar swirl tell you about the kind of body that's underneath it yeah. generating that magnetic field? Like if it's long and strung out, is that body also long and strung out? And if it's kind of all concentrated at yeah. one point, does that reflect the body as well? I think that's right. I think that the I think that's what th what these things are so useful for. So you might wonder, like, why do we care about these things? It's kind of an esoteric thing. So let me tell you two reasons we care about them. One is, first of all, understanding space weathering. So space weathering, again, seems like a little bit of a special topic. But the only way we know what anything's made of, short of getting a physical sample of it in the lab, is by looking at its spectra. So the spectra that you get these like wiggly lines that are characteristics of different, you know, tell you that there are different minerals absorbing different kinds of uh, photons, right? And so uh, if you, the space weathering process changes the optical properties. So it makes surfaces dark, at least on the moon, it depends on the kind of target surface, but on the moon, um, it makes the surface darker over time. It makes the spectral continuum slope redder, and it also erases those spectral absorption features. And so if space weathering is corrupt, corrupting the signatures of stuff that we're trying to look at out there, it's important that we understand how that works. Mm -hmm. So that's why understanding space, space weathering is important. And then understanding lunar magnetism is important because first of all, planetary magnetism in general is like a really fundamental thing. We talked a lot about this earlier. You have the fact that you have a magnetic field or you ever had a magnetic field tells you a lot about the deep internal structure of a planet. It tells you that it got hot enough to melt for the metals to segregate out towards the center. It tells you that the interior was hot and uh, in like in vigorous enough motion to generate a magnetic field. It's like, it tells you kind of a lot of the story of what the thermal history, the formation and thermal history of a planet. So these are two important things. And swirls are kind of this interesting little weird feature that inter that live at the intersection of those two fields and they give you clues about both. So this is a long answer to your question, but the shape of the swirl, I think has to be telling you about the structure of the magnetic field. Uh, they have to be related, and I can give you uh, some arguments for for why, but basically it's telling you about those under underlying magnetized source bodies, which in turn tells you something about how strongly magnetized they are, which in turn tells you something about the field that magnetized them. So maybe that tells you something about the thermal and magnetic history of the moon. And then at the same time, because we, you know, we know something about magnetic fields, um, this is allowing us to learn something about the optical effects of solar wind related space weathering because micrometeorites don't care about magnetic fields, but solar wind does. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that magnetic fields like these, you know, these crustal magnetic anomalies separate those two effects allows us to understand space weathering better, which helps us understand basically everything that we're looking at. Yeah. So does the optical properties of space weathering that you're talking about um, create that kind of like light and dark banding on lunar swirls? Yeah, so the idea is that if there was no magnetic anomaly, uh, you open up a fresh crater, it's bright material initially, and it will get darker over time as it's exposed to the space environment. Some of it is like glasses being created by these impact melts, and some of it is just like um, sputtering that happens when solar wind is hitting the surface. There's a few interesting thing that, things that happen. Like one thing that happens is like you basically vaporize bits of these this rock, and there's like iron oxides in the rock, and the oxygen escapes when you from that little vapor cloud. And then the iron condenses into these little beads of metallic iron that coat the surfaces of the grains of these uh, dust grains. And so you can look at this with in the laboratory. They can do this with like, you know, uh, uh, transmission electron microscopy. And uh, you can see this happening and it changes. That's what's responsible for at least some of the changes of the optical properties. Yeah. So what we think is that things are getting darker and all that. So the places where you see bright splotches at swirls are places where you're protected, relatively speaking, from the solar wind. So the idea is that like 
and, and we can confirm this to some degree with the with observations that um, the dark lanes, the dark spart parts of swirls, are places where the magnetic field lines are open or vertical. So basically, particles are going to funnel down those magnetic field lines and hitting the surface and darkening it normally. Yep. But then the bright places are where the sur the field lines are kind of more horizontal at the surface. They're essentially shielding, protecting the surface from exposure to solar wind. Wow, that's super super cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of that. I just That's, dumped a lot of stuff on you. No, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I'm just taking a second to uh, to yeah. to process everything there. Yeah. So, I'm I'm curious about. Um, obviously, there's like a, I, I don't know how valid of a hypothesis it is, hypothesis it is in actual research, but the hypothesis I laid out, which, you know, you have uh, some kind of impactor that's oh, yeah. magnetized and it, um, you know, hits the moon and kind of gets buried over time. Um, is there any other hypothesis for how a magnetic body forms under the yeah. surface? Maybe some kind of intrusive yeah, magnetic yeah, yeah. thing? or Right. So it could be intrusive features. So you have some kind of eruption or some kind of uh, magma that comes up and doesn't reach the surface and makes an intrusive body and is somehow rich enough in magnetite or whatever that it uh, acquires a magnetic signature more so than the surrounding country rock. That's one idea, and that's an idea that we suggested in this paper a few years ago because it's a good way to account for the morphology. Like these things have these interesting characteristic swirly kind of patterns, and they look like kind of sinuous structures, like you would get from like underground lava tubes or or dikes in certain cases. They're long and narrow, mm -hmm. um, so that's why we like that. But it's hard to think about how you get them to be so rich in you know the magnetic minerals to be able to. Uh, have a strong, acquire a very strong magnetic signature. So that's where the metal hypothesis is good, like uh, metal-rich impactors is good. It's hard to explain, harder to explain the morphology. It's not so obvious why you would make, you know, long, sinuous features with uh, ejecta. Maybe you could do that a little bit with, like, ejecta arms, but they're not sort of organized radial to any impactor site. They're much ejecta more Ejecta arms? What is oh, that? I'm sorry. Yeah. When an impactor hits, you yep. get, like, material flying off in all directions, and sometimes yep. you get these sort of like linear type features sort of radiate radiating out from the center of that impactor yeah site. so if you like uh if you like throw a lego on the ground you're going to get those pieces of it kind of spread out over the yeah the something like that okay. yeah but sometimes sometimes they organize themselves into a certain they pick a certain azimuth and a bunch uh, of them okay. follow that yeah but um that's all i meant by that but but yeah it's hard it's very hard to explain these things honestly um so yeah maybe they're magnetic intrusions maybe they're ejecta uh another problem is as if they're impactors, they should be shocked or they may be shocked. And that, that could do two things. One, if they were magnetized before, that may demagnetize them. Mm -hmm. um, or it could be that there's nothing's magnetized and there's no magnetic field present in the first place, but the shock creates a brief magnetic field. There's shock magnetization. Uh, but on the other hand, some of these features are big enough that they shouldn't be able to, like they must have cooled slowly. It's if a big object cools slowly uh, it takes millions of years to cool. And then uh, if this transient magnetic field is only around for, you know, a day or something like that, it's not enough. And so that's why many of these kinds of examples favor a presence of a long or long running, like a, a dynamo that's operating, a global scale magnetic field generated in the core of the moon that's operating for a long period of time, hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. And that these are events that are happening during that time. But yeah, whether they're magmatic intrusions or 
you know, metal rich impactor ejecta that somehow gets obscured so you can't tell where it is from the surface because these features, I should have mentioned this, but these features have basically no topographic signature at all. They just look like they're spray painted on the surface. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little perplexed on like how... Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> like how do you form a, a body in such a way where... Because um, I would imagine if it's an impactor, then maybe you could say that it was permanently magnetized in some direction on in some other part of the solar system where it had the conditions to do so. But if you are on the moon and um, you're saying that there's no, there, there's no evidence for a magnetic field ever on the moon that's generated within the moon, then how do you end up? Wait, who's saying that? No, just oh, anyone. Okay. Yeah, if you any, say that, okay. Okay, yeah. just yeah. hypothetically, right? And uh, so how do you, like, how do you generate the orientation and in, in, in the magnet permanent magnet magnetization of that magmatic yeah i know that's a good magnetic question body to create you know a shape like so i think i, I think i just see what you're saying and yeah i think it's a good question. i didn't word that very correctly no no, no but i think i see what you're saying yeah. like if it's just random material and there's no global dipolar magnetic field on the moon then how do you get a coherent magnetization of that collection of rocks? yeah exactly yeah um no, it's a good question. It could be that I think one of the ideas about this like impact generated plasma uh, temporary magnetic field is it is does have some structure to it. So it has a particular orientation, but for a train a short period of time. And and if it's intense enough, it may be able to magnetize these these samples in some kind of coherent way. But yeah, honestly, I don't know. I don't know where the the proponents of those ideas uh, haven't talked to them lately and heard if they've like got a good explanation that satisfies all the observations i mean i'm in the camp of favoring a dynamo on the moon that there was a dynamo at the time that these things formed um and so then it's just thermal remnant magnetization but i'm still left with the problem of like okay still what are these things are they intrusive features are they ejecta or what yeah yeah exactly yeah so dr hemingway i think that's all the time we have today okay thank you so much for coming on the show yeah i know i want to give you a couple minutes here at the end to talk about any new research you have going on or anything you want to promote or, you know, where can people find you and maybe ask questions? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't really do social media or anything like that, but, um, but um, you can go to douglashemingway.com if you want to learn more about me or, or get in touch. Um, but yeah, in terms of research, as you can tell, I work in a lot of different areas. <laughs> um, so it's hard to kind of pick one to focus on. I, I mentioned that Venus project. I think that's something I'm kind of excited about right now because it just come off uh just trying to understand how, why Venus doesn't have a magnetic field compared to Earth. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more work to be done on icy ocean worlds. So that's another big area for me that I'm going to continue to work on for quite a while, I think. Uh, just understanding the dynamics of those ice shells and uh, what we can learn about the similarities and differences across these kinds of bodies across the solar system. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but yeah, there's, I'm sure there's many other things, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's no time to list them all now. <laughs> Yeah. Gotcha. Well, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate okay. It. No problem. Cheers. Thank you for tuning into this episode where we learned about planetary geophysics and truly jaw-dropping natural phenomena across our solar system. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Hemingway or his research, you can find the appropriate links in the show note captions, as well as scholarly articles mentioned in the podcast and further reading. 
If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Heights of Humanity podcast, you can check out the YouTube channel, which has full video interviews, as well as the official podcast website, www.heightsofhumanitypodcast.com. As always, I'd like to express my tremendous love and gratitude for everyone listening and supporting this podcast. See you in the next episode.